Well, hello and welcome to Waypoint Church Online. However you're accessing us, whatever time of day, you're really welcome. Perhaps you're a regular member of our church family or part of our growing online community. We really do pray this morning that you'll experience something of God's presence. My name's Andy Baines. I'm part of the team of servant leaders here at Waypoint. And um, I don't know what sort of week you've had. I've got some exciting news uh, the other day. I'm going to get my jab next week. I was beginning to feel a bit uh, left out, left behind, but uh, very much looking forward to getting that done. Do please continue to pray for Mark Madavan, our senior pastor, as he comes to the end of his sabbatical period and prepares to come back to church at the end of this month. Also, please do get in contact with us. If you've got any questions or comments, perhaps a prayer request, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us a message. Our motto text last year as a church was Isaiah 43 verse 16 see I am doing a new thing and Claire and Marie are going to talk to us now about a really special milestone for one of those new things. Let's go back to our very first video. We want Waypoint Church to become a hub for our community where we can support um, and care for those who need it through shopping, collecting medication, dog walking or maybe even just a phone call. Watch out over the coming days for more information about how you can get involved, how you can ask for help for yourself or someone you know. The hub opened one year ago in response to the COVID-19 pandemic to practically love and support our community. We were expecting it to only be a temporary thing until things got back to normal, when we would connect the people we were supporting into our church services, groups and activities. Over the last 12 months, God has led us in a very different way. We started with just three essential services, food parcels, practical help, so things like shopping and picking up prescriptions, board and bags for the shielding and isolated. Over the last year, we have given out 1,690 food parcels, gone shopping for 580 households, picked up and delivered 135 prescriptions and helped and supported 405 households in other ways, bringing our grand total of help so far to 2,810. Everyone we support is so appreciative. Each family and household is given an anonymous ID number for practical reasons, but to us, they are all individuals, known by name, each with their own challenges and struggles, stories and life journeys that have brought them to us. It's humbling and a real privilege to have been invited into many of their lives as they've opened up, made themselves vulnerable with us. We've celebrated birthdays, new babies, new homes, new jobs, and stood alongside them in disappointments, job losses, bereavements, having to move away and changes in health. What started in the South Foyer with just two tables has grown to here in the old crèche room. By stepping out to meet people in their homes rather than expecting them to come to us, we've connected with our community in new ways and at a depth we've not seen before. Through what started out as practically feeding, loving and supporting our community, we are now also spiritually feeding them, showing them God's love and truths and sharing the gospel with them. Waypoint Church is well known in our community as a place to ask for help, to be known, to be welcomed, valued and accepted. 
Through the commitment and consistency of our volunteers, we are increasingly being invited into people's lives and as a result are seeing opportunities to pray with and for people, give out Bibles and Christian books. We are so thankful for all our amazing volunteers from both within our church family and our local community who have given so much of their time over the last year. We have asked some of them to pick one highlight to share. We've enjoyed getting to know the people we've been taking food parcels to over the last year. We were particularly excited when a new baby that was born last week was shown to us through the window. My highlight has been building the relationships with the ladies that I do the shopping for and being able to share my faith in just little snippets um, during the conversations that we have. I've had a great time um, serving at the Hub. It's been great to see people make friends and have great conversations on doorsteps. When I delivered a Bible alongside a food parcel and just seeing the excitement on this person's face. It's been lovely to meet people and hear their stories and to be able to support them. I've just been so impressed by their gratitude and their very often their desire to help other people even though they were here for themselves. Thank you to you for all your prayers, donations of items and finances. We couldn't have done it without you. Together we are making a big difference. We are blown away at where and how God has led and directed us over this year and are really excited at what is to come as lockdown lifts, giving opportunities for more interaction and connection. So do please continue to pray for Claire and her amazing team of volunteers but also for all those individuals and couples and families in our community who are being blessed both physically and spiritually by this amazing uh, growing new ministry. And now Sandra is going to talk to us about another exciting initiative. 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 If my people were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Over the last couple of months, we have been hearing a lot about prayer. More and more people are turning to God in prayer. Last year, we had a prayer caravan. We've had a national day of prayer. Some home groups have been running Pete Gregg's course, the prayer course. We have apps on our phone, like Lectios 365, this is all helping us to connect with God. We are looking for a breakthrough in our lives, in our land, in our nation and in the world. More than ever before, we want to hear from God. So we want to give you an opportunity on the 26th of March from 8am to 12pm midnight on Zoom. Come and join us for five or ten minutes or however long you have, come and be part of what God is doing. More details will follow. Some of us as a leadership were praying the other day and we felt that God gave us a picture and it was a picture of a lightning bolt hitting the earth. Now, don't worry, we don't believe we're about to be smited from on high. Lightning is caused when two uh, highly charged areas, one 
up in the atmosphere and one on the ground um, discharge a massive amount of energy uh, between them. And we interpreted this as a call for us to charge ourselves on the ground by joining our hands together in prayer so that we could connect to the mighty power of God like a lightning bolt between us, allowing us to move forward into this new season, re-energised with his powerful truth and love and grace. This is a really exciting time for us as a church, so we really would encourage you to join with us in this coming week of fasting and prayer as we charge ourselves to hear and receive from God and culminating in this day of prayer next Friday from, that's the 26th of March, from eight in the morning until midnight. We're going to have some sung worship uh, shortly, but uh, before that, we're going to hear from uh, Ian Coffey. Ian is a Baptist minister and also vice principal at Moreland's Bible College. He's going to be bringing us uh, the third part of our current teaching series. I'm really chuffed that we're going to be hearing from Ian. Uh, he played a really important part in the start of my faith journey. He came and spoke at the University of Portsmouth over 30 years ago when I was a student there. And after hearing him speak that evening, I gave my life to Christ. And what an exciting journey it's been since then. Good morning. It's really good to uh, be with you again at Waypoint. Uh, the third of our studies in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, we thought in week one about pressure and how to face it. Last week we were thinking about partnership and why we need it. And our theme this morning is passion and how to kindle it. I wonder what you think when you hear that word passion. What sort of picture does it conjure up in your mind in the context of faith and following Jesus? It's an interesting word. It means a strong feeling, an emotion, a commitment towards something or someone. It's about compulsion. It's what drives us. In our work here at Morelands College, our mission statement simply says, Morelands College exists to equip men and women passionate about Jesus Christ to impact his church and his world passionate about Jesus Christ. Now what do we look for? Do we look for excited extroverts bouncing in on invisible pogo sticks looking as if they've overdosed on happy pills? No, far, far from it. We look for men and women who have a sense of call on their life. Uh, in the words of that song that we sometimes sing in our worship times, they have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back no turning back. I often in my own prayers like to use the prayer attributed to Bishop Richard of Chichester back in the 13th century where he said give me grace to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly and follow thee more nearly. That's passion, a focus on Jesus and a desire to follow him. Those of you who are old enough to remember Godspell like I can will remember that song Day by Day, uh, which became a big hit. Well, it wasn't uh, Tim Rice and Lloyd Webber that coined that, it was Bishop Richard of Chichester. But in our Christian faith, 
as in our relationships, we know that passion needs polishing. We were talking the other morning at home and my wife Ruth told me that she used to visit her grandparents when she was a little girl and her favourite job was to put some duraglit on the brass bits and pieces that they had all around their, their little cottage where they lived, shining up the brass. And it reminds us that in any relationship, marriage, friendship, in our devotion to Christ, we need to pay attention to it. I'm going to talk in a moment or two from Philippians uh, chapter 3. And I just want to give you a little bit of a, a background. You see, there's quite a bit of debate amongst people who are experts on the New Testament because they think that by the time Paul gets to what we know as chapter 3, verse 1, although the chapters and the verse references were put in later by translators, but they get the feeling that at this point, Paul is about to finish his letter. He's uh, coming into land. And then he gets diverted. And we'll think in a moment about what exactly diverts him. Now, whether or not that's true is the sort of thing that New Testament scholars earn their living debating. But I do know in my life there are sometimes digressions or diversions that are important. I try and make it a habit each day as I pray over the things that I've got planned, the lessons I have to teach, the people I'm due to meet. I try to inject into that prayer, Lord, if there's something you want me to do, someone you want me to speak to or to listen to, then make me open to your diversions. Maybe that's a prayer that some of us need to pray, particularly if we are focused, driven people. Uh, we've got an agenda we want to fulfil. It's always worth saying to God day by day, show me who you want me to meet today. We're going to look at this little section that runs from chapter 3 verse 1 down to verse uh, 14. I'm going to break it down to make it a little bit easier to understand and it does actually fall into into three categories where Paul talks about his past, his present and then his future. So join with me in looking at that as we begin to read from chapter 3 and verse 1. Further my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So what's caused this diversion in Paul's mind if he is about to finish the letter? And what does he mean talking about people who are dogs, evildoers, 
Mutilators of the Flesh. It all sounds a bit more like a scary late night horror movie. Well, at this particular point, Paul is wanting to warn his friends about a group of people who were really a plague on the early church. They were people who came from a Jewish background and they resented the fact that people who were from non-Jewish Gentile backgrounds were coming into the church. They were being admitted into the faith. They were being baptised, but they weren't doing it the proper way. You see, for these people who came from a Jewish heritage and background, for them, things like Sabbath observance, observing the various Jewish festivals, being strict about food laws, kosher food was the only thing that was acceptable. And if you were a man, the ritual of circumcision. These things they felt were part of their religious culture and heritage. And they didn't like these Gentile Christians, so-called, coming in and having, well, they would see it as an easy entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, Paul was a staunch opponent of these people because he knew what they were really doing was adding to the good news about Jesus. Anything that says Jesus is not enough is a heresy. It's a diversion from the true gospel. If anyone says, oh, in addition to believing in Jesus, you, well, you, you need to join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and go through our baptism ritual, or you need to read the Bible with the, the lens of the watchtowers that Jehovah's Witnesses would insist. It's a Jesus plus message. And whenever you have a Jesus plus message, it's heresy. It's moving away from the true and authentic gospel. Now, the interesting thing here is, as Paul does get diverted, um, in our translation, verse two just simply says, watch out. In the original language in which this was written, this is what it says. Watch out. Watch out watch out. It's repeated three times. Now, if you're a parent, you'll understand perfectly what that language is about. How many times do we say to our children, read my lips, listen carefully to what I'm going to say, repeat what I've just said to you. Paul is underlining something here, which is really important. Now, why does he use words like dogs and mutilators of the flesh, which sounds a bit over the top? Well, it's, it's a kind of a, a cynical play on words. You see, devout Jews would refer to Gentiles as dogs. And don't think of those lovely furry pets that we have at home and give us so much love and, and comfort. No, these were wild scavenging dogs that lived off the rubbish tip and human remains. And that's how Gentiles were seen. But Paul's saying here, he's, he's turning, if you like, that insult around and saying, no, no, these are the ones who are behaving like wild scavenging dogs because they're excluding people who God wants to include. Mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about those who insist on circumcision. And this is where Paul shares his testimony. If indeed he has been diverted at this point, and it's really wonderful because it gives him a chance to talk about where he was when Jesus met him. If you look in the text, he talks about being proud about his, his religion. <laughs> he talks about being proud 
about his race. He talks about the pride that he has in his righteousness. You see, it's all there. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, as for passion, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You, you, you see what he's doing, don't you? He's saying, this is where I was. I was where these Jewish uh, believers, so-called, we sometimes refer to them as Judaizers who wanted to retain the Jewishness of the Christian faith. He said, that's where I was. I trusted in these things. If you'd stopped me before I met Jesus on the road to Damascus and said, what are you trusting in to make you right with God? He said, I was so proud. My race, my religion, my righteousness. But that all changed. When Paul met Jesus in that blinding revelation on the road to Damascus. He was going to obliterate people who confessed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And then he met the risen Jesus and his life turned around. So you see what Paul's saying is these people who boast in these things, who say, this is what makes me a proper Christian. He said, that's where I came from. I thought that these things made me right with God. And then God showed me his grace and his mercy and how I was a sinner and how I needed a saving work of Christ in my life. I've conducted many funerals in, in my ministry, but one of the most surprising was a funeral for someone in our church who was a, a quiet man. He was someone who uh, I think had served for a little while as a deacon before I got there. But he was he was known for being very quiet, very solid Christian, but uh, was never someone who'd stand up the front and, and preach or even lead in worship. And when the funeral was being arranged, his widow handed me a letter. It was in a sealed envelope and the envelope simply said to the minister who will conduct my funeral. I opened the envelope. It had been written a number of years before. And in it, it was just a simple handwritten note where he said, inside this envelope is another envelope which contains a letter. And I want to ask you, please, to read this at my funeral service. And I don't want you to ch change anything in it. Don't edit it. Don't alter anything at all. But just read the whole of the contents of this letter. I opened the second envelope. And in it was a very moving testimony. The man's name was Gordon. And Gordon told the story of how he had grown up in and around church. He was, as he put it in his own words, a church goer. Someone who was very nominal in his faith. He, he believed in God, but really God was for an hour on a Sunday. And then a terrible tragedy occurred in his life. He lost his teenage son in very tragic circumstances. And through his grief, Gordon found a new place with God. He came to a personal living faith. And this was all recounted in the letter that he'd asked me to read at his funeral. But it was the final part of the letter that was not only very moving, but extremely challenging. 
He said, for those of you who've gathered today to remember my life, I just want to ask you, what are you trusting in to make you right with God? Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your religious attachments. But the only hope any of us have is to trust in Jesus Christ. And he said, I just simply urge you, having lived for many years as a nominal Christian, that you might ask Christ to be the living saviour that he is in your life today. Can you imagine the impact of reading that at Gordon's funeral and Thanksgiving service? He wanted to point people to the difference between churchianity and Christianity. It's all in the word, isn't it? Churchianity, religion, Christianity, knowing Jesus Christ personally. Paul writes about his past, but he then writes about his present. Let me read to you uh, from verse seven onwards. But whatever were gains to me, he says, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> what a difference. That previous section, it was all about me, wasn't it? My race, my religion, my righteousness, my zeal. But now, if you let your eyes just wander down over those verses again, do you see how many times the word Christ appears? Jesus, Christ, I want to know him. You see, what happened with Paul was he literally moved from being religious to encountering Jesus and seeing him as the saviour, the only hope that we have. He says, I decided that what I thought was to my profit was actually a loss. He uses a very strong word in verse eight. Uh, the translators of the New International Version uh, want to preserve our Sunday morning sensibilities. And so they say it's garbage. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is excrement. That's how I regard these things that I once was so proud of. Paul says that, that's what they are in God's sight because he's trying to cling on to my, my way of sorting my life out. This is why God should accept me because of all the good things I've done. He says, no, I realise that's just excrement in God's eyes. So what's our hope? <laughs> he says our hope is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It's a gift of God. You see, when I acknowledge my need of a saviour, I find that I have a saviour in the Lord Jesus. 
And not only does God offer us through the blood that Christ shed on the cross forgiveness, but here's the wonderful thing. He takes the righteousness of Christ and places that in my account. Imagine you are so badly overdrawn in the righteousness bank. <laughs> it's in the red. But then all the righteousness of Christ is placed to our credit. That's what it means. See, the theologians call it imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Christ placed in my account. Friends, that is truly amazing grace. Some of you may have been a bit puzzled in verse 11 where Paul says, somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Is he being wistful? Is he saying, I don't know whether I've made it? No, it's, it's the somehow of wonder. Now, many of us know John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. It's one of the great hymns of the Christian faith. Newton came a little bit like Paul to know Jesus at a point in his life when he was very, very, very far from God. He was a slave trader. He was a, a ship's captain. His life was uh, full of blasphemy and, and wrong living. But then he met Jesus and he never lost the wonder of what that meant. In fact, Newton used to talk about the three wonders in his life. He used to say, when I get to heaven, I will wonder at those who are there who I didn't think would be there. The second wonder is, he says, I will wonder at those who are not there, who I thought would be there. But he said, the greatest wonder of all will be that I'm there. No wonder he wrote, amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see paul could identify with that i wonder if you can identify with that who or what are you trusting in Friends, you may have been a Christian for many, many years, but we should never be tired of preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of all that God has done for us in Christ and how we are sinners who have a great saviour in Jesus. Paul had a past, Paul had a present, but Paul also had a future. Let me read you this last little section from verse 12 down to verse 14. And by the way, you'll pick up your verse, the waypoint verse for the year uh, in verse 14. And you'll see the context in which it comes. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ.
Christ Jesus. You get the picture there of a, a runner uh, coming to the end of a, a long race, perhaps a marathon, and then coming into that final straight and giving it that last burst of energy, accelerating, not slowing down, but breasting the tape, giving everything that they can as they run the race to the very finish. Now, remember, I said this is probably a, a diversion, a digression. And it gives us a glimpse into not only where Paul was, his past, to where he'd come, his present, where he trusted wholly in Christ for his salvation. But it gives us a glimpse into his future where Paul says, I haven't arrived yet. I don't think I've got all this sussed. I'm pressing on because I want to lay hold of everything that God has laid hold of me for. I read a book uh, some time ago. If you're into books, it's one that I'd recommend. It's called Paul, A Biography, and it's written by Tom Wright, uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, one of the leading New Testament theologians in the world today. But before he became a theologian, he was a historian. And he's written that biography of Paul very much with the eye of the historian. And one of the things that he's almost obsessed about in the book, if that's not too strong a word to use, is what drove Paul? What, what drove him forward? Let me read you something that he wrote. He said, what was Paul trying to do with his life? What made him do it? Why did he keep going back to synagogues, even though people kept beating him? Why did he keep urging his message on Gentiles, even though they thought he was a crazy Jew and wanted to run him out of town? Why did he carry on relentlessly with his apparent desire to be in three places at once, to write to five churches at once, to explain and cajole, to teach and to proclaim and to travel and to travel and to travel some more? What was it that drove him? And the answer is, passion for Jesus, a passion to declare the good news about the one who had saved him and rescued him. He wanted others to come to know that same freedom and joy in believing in Jesus as God's saviour, the rescuer, the redeemer. Tom Wright goes on in his book to say that if you had Paul as a friend, you would describe him as high maintenance. I agree with that. But he was fanatical for a purpose. He was fanatical because of Jesus and all that he had done for him. This is why these words read with, with such passion coming off the page. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on to win the prize. I press on. You know, there's a real risk for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, and I include myself in that, that we can become stale. We can have that seen there, been it, done it, got the T-shirt kind of attitude. Some of us even get to a point where we think, well, I've done a lot. Maybe it's time for me to step back and, and let others take the strain." Well, that may be a, a good point, but we should never lose our passion for Jesus. In fact, even if we're not in the front line of service and leadership, 
there's something else that we can do. We can carry on being an inspiration to those who come behind to show them what it means to cross the line running. Not to limp over the line, but to sprint over the line. I think that was what was in the minds of the leaders here at Waypoint when they chose this as a verse for this year. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. That doesn't mean the past is unimportant. No, far from it. But it means we don't want to live there. We don't want to live on yesterday's glories, but we want to lay hold of what God has for us today and tomorrow. We don't neglect the past, but we have that sense that God has a new chapter. God has a new chapter for you as a church. Are we willing to embrace that? The title that I gave today, um, Passion and How to Kindle It, is, is quite an important thing. It gives that picture, doesn't it, of uh, the barbecue. If you know about barbecues in the British summer, you'll understand that sometimes you, you need to, to fan the flame. You need to fan it into power. And that's an image that Paul uses when he writes to his young colleague in the faith, Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, right at the beginning of the letter, he says this. I'm reminding you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. See, Paul knew that when you're involved in leadership, when you're involved in any kind of Christian ministry, it's easy for the embers to grow cold. I think this last year has been a tough year for many of us, hasn't it? The pandemic has, has created all kinds of pressures. Some of us have lost people very close to us, people that we loved in circumstances that are just tragic. Some of us have had real impact in our mental health, in our own welfare. Some of us have been deeply disturbed about members of our family and how they have struggled to cope. Some of us have been deeply impacted by the economic downturn and the repercussions of lockdown that's gone on now for so long and it's very easy in circumstances like that for our faith to be blunted for the embers to start to go out and that's why that image of fanning into flame is such a helpful one for us today how do I do that well I think it begins by being honest with God if we think that we can fool God by going around and saying the right things and, and singing the right songs, praying the right kind of prayers. We don't fool the Lord at all. Far better to be honest and say, Lord, my cup is empty. I feel the embers are growing very, very cold. And when we come with that kind of honesty and openness before God, it's the beginning. It's the start. And I wonder if I can suggest that maybe sometime today in all the other things that you've planned to do, you take some time to be alone and to be still before God and to be honest and to say, Lord, would you, in the words of that hymn that we often used to sing, sadly, we don't sing it so much these days, 
Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I may love what you would love and do what you would do. Breathe on me afresh, breath of God. For some years, uh, my wife Ruth and I worked in an international church in Geneva and we got to enjoy the, the beautiful Alps not far from where we lived. And it was while we were living there, I read about the, the missionary pioneer Amy Carmichael. Some of you will know about her amazing pioneer work uh, as a single woman working in the south of India. She had a break at, at some point in her work and was staying in the Alps. And while she was there, uh, she went out for a walk one day and found in a little uh, cemetery a freshly dug grave. And she looked at the stone that had obviously only been put there a very short while before. And it gave the name of uh, a mountain guide, date of his birth, the date of his death. She could see he was a very young man when he died. But underneath, the family had put a very simple epitaph. Simple statement. He died climbing. And Amy Carmichael, who was uh, a bit of a poet as well, went back to where she was staying and she wrote a very memorable short poem. And in it, she talks about wanting to be a mountaineer. The first verse says, make us thy mountaineers. We would not linger on the lower slope. Fill us afresh with hope, O God of hope, that undefeated we may climb the hill as seeing him who is invisible. The next verse says, let us die climbing. And the final verse, the final line, simply four words, teach me to climb. That resonates with what we've been thinking about today, passion. It comes when we have that resolute determination, where we pray and openly say to God, Lord, I'm running out of steam. The embers are growing cold, fan that flame into a fire again in my heart and give me that resolve to press on. I'm so glad that your leaders chose that as your verse for the year, not simply because it fits in with our studies through Philippians week by week, but because I think it's a, it's a word in season. I think it's the right word for you as a church as you thank God for all that he's done for you in these magnificent new buildings that you will soon be enjoying to the full with the witness that you have in your neighbourhood, in your community, the influence you have in the wider world. God's calling you to a new chapter and he wants to know that you are people renewed, equipped, full of faith, ready to serve, who simply say, Lord, we want to press on. May we pray for a moment together. Holy Spirit, as you have inspired this word to be written, please write it on our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen.